Thank you for joining the Limitless Energy Podcast, and I am so happy to welcome back to the podcast, Taylor Wilson. Hey, thanks for having me, Dennis. Thanks for coming back. You're the first repeat guest we've ever had. All so right. I feel that, lucky. It's, you know, it's a, it's a high bar. So um, I, I wanted to talk with you today about um, American innovation. And we are in an interesting time right now where uh, after so many decades over the last century of America leading, it, does it feel to you like we are no longer leading, at least in a lot of areas of uh, science and technology? Yeah, I mean, it's something I spend a lot of time thinking about, you know, how we've kind of bled off a lot of the kind of domestic innovation base, and that's both in, in research and development and manufacturing. You know, we we exist as this kind of unique um, ecosystem in the world of researchers and scientists and engineers that have developed some of the greatest technology. And um, we're still considered the pinnacle. And we are. I mean, our universities regard. and our research, uh, both in the public and private sector, is still the best in the world. But, you know, we've kind of lost a lot of the ability to make stuff in this country anymore. And so, you know, one of the things I'm, I'm really excited about is, you know, how do we bring that innovation base back, still develop these new technologies, but then also have the ability to, to make them here in the United States? Well, let's come back to the universities and how uh, over the last, I don't know, five, six decades, how uh, the, the United States has had an educational system an education system that has evolved in such a way that we are we we still have sort of the core of how we how we develop technology how that is that research is disseminated through through scientific publications but there's something different now it seems a little bit more watered down i don't know i'd love to hear your thoughts on it in, in my opinion it feels like there's a lot more PhDs graduating. There's a lot mm -hmm. more scientific journals. There's a lot more articles that keep getting published. And there is kind of a watering down effect when it comes to actual innovation. Yeah. And I, I think, you know, to some degree, that's that's completely true. I think, you know, our, our pace of, you know, if, if you look at it, at, you know, a metrics driven approach where you look at the number of papers published and the number of PhDs awarded and things like this, we're continuing to grow. But, you know, we're I incentivizing that. Yeah, we're incentivizing that. But I, you know, I do wonder if, you know, the impact of the research and the ability to translate that research out into, you know, the private sector and create companies around these technologies and things like that, it does seem like there has been a slowdown. And so, you know, I think one of the things that I spend a lot of time working on and thinking about is, you know, how do we kind of incentivize and accelerate that innovation, both the pure science, the fundamental science itself, and also, you know, the ability to translate that science out into, out into the world. And, you know, that, that translation part is across many different sectors and areas and fields because, you know, there's, there's pure science that's done, you know, in basic physics and chemistry and biology that might not be directly translatable, but it's still important. And being able to translate that out into a broader community is important and have folks that can communicate that and interpret that and, and apply that is important. And then when you think the more applied fields, so more applied work in physics and chemistry and biology and, and engineering, you know, how do we do work and how do we translate that work to the private sector such that those innovations can, you know, really impact people's lives. You know, I, I 
I love science. I love kind of understanding the basic fundamental rules of the road is what I call them of physics and chemistry and biology. Um, but I also feel this obligation to not just do that work in a vacuum, to take that work or take that knowledge that's generated and try to do something useful with it, try to solve a problem. And so I think the more we can kind of encourage folks to think about ways to use their research in innovative ways, you know, the better off we'll be and, and we can kind of create an ecosystem that, that helps, you know, that kind of innovation economy more broadly. I think, Taylor, you're a unique case because I think you're self-motivated and you're, you're internally incentivized to do something that does have impact. And I think you hit the nail on the head where if you are incentivized to maximize the number of papers that you have and maximize the number of PhD students that you graduate, you're mm -hmm. not really as incentivized to do, some, to do something that's impactful, which means it's not going to translate to the private sector. No yeah. one's going to want to do anything that is not going to lead to better manufacturing, lead to revenue generation, right? Yeah. So um, in terms of how higher education evolves do you think that there's anything, and I'm not talking about a workforce, I, I'm constantly touting how the universities, are, especially here in, in, in Reno, are so good at generating the, wor the workforce that's needed. But in terms of innovation that is translated uh, and transferred to, to the private sector and resulting in really impactful products and, and technologies that can be used, it seems like over the last 30 years, the focus has been on software, on the, you know, the Stanford model and the Googles and, the, yep. you know, Facebook. Yep. And what's happened? Why, why has manufacturing fallen behind? Yeah, well, I mean, so I think there's a few different, you know, parts to what you're saying there. And, and you know, I think there's there's clear ways that we can start to incentivize, you know, progress in this in this in this way, but I I think you hit the nail on the head. Is we've done so much in um, innovation and wealth creation in this country around software. Um, you think of the Silicon Valley model and all of these companies that have been developed out of Silicon Valley and that model of startups. It's very easy for someone to develop code. All you need is a computer. You can be anywhere in the world and you can do that. You know, hardware. Um, you know, hard engineering it's riskier it's riskier and it's much more difficult because you need space you need equipment you need real things to to be able to do it and so i think you know one of the things that you know i've really been talking about and trying to get going is to create incubator models around hardware where instead of you know something like y combinator where you have a lot of folks coming in with ideas for software you provide some resources such that if people have really innovative ideas in the hardware space, they have some of the kind of like existing infrastructure to be able to do it. So I think that's part of it is give people the opportunity and the resources to take risk when it comes to developing technology. Um, because as you said, you need to take risk. You know, um, if you if you kind of and I think we end up with this in academia sometimes, if you try to go after the lowest hanging fruit or research that is you know, most likely to get published or be able to sustain students and, and funding you know, from, from existing sources, it kind of de-incentivizes taking risk. Mm -hmm. And you know, the greatest both scientific discoveries and also innovation and engineering have come from people taking risks. And that's the point of tenure. That's yeah. why universities give tenure, because no. once you've proven yourself, you want to be able to not have to worry about the success of your research. And the only way to do it is 
to not have to be exclusively incentivized by those numbers, by the number game. You want to, you want to do the only like you said, you, the only way to do high impact research is to do high risk research. Yeah. And so that, but that's not really happening now. You're still, even if you are well on your way to full professor and beyond shared professor, there's still a numbers game, right? There's still sort of bean counting. Absolutely. And and a lot of that has to do with the, the kind of available sources of funding, right? You know, there, there's a lot of money for available for things that we know how to do. Um, you know, if you want to innovate or iterate on some existing set of technology, there's typically a lot of money available to do that. It's, it's harder to get money for more kind of mm, outside the box thinking, yeah. more risky thinking. And that's why some of the, and when I talk about new, I mean in the last 10 year programs that the federal government has tried to initiate, things like ARPA-E, mm-hmm. I think have been so successful because they've gone after a model where they say, you know, not all of these ideas have to pay off. Not all of these ideas have to be successful, but even if one or two of them are, it's worth it because it creates new economies, it creates entire new fields of research. Um, so things like RPE, I think are, are really exciting in the energy space. And I think it really did take a kind of page out of the, the DARPA book. You know, DARPA, even though it was always focused on things that could help um, the military, the Department of Defense, they funded all kinds of risky early stage research. And that led to the creation of so many technologies that we have today, you know, self-driving cars, the internet, space, uh, space innovations. Um, and so, you know, being able to translate that DARPA model of, you know, incentivizing and funding high risk research, I think is a really good model. And so RPE has been able to do that at Department of Energy. Um, and now that's being expanded into other sectors focused on health and and things of that nature. Um, One of the things I've been encouraging and really promoting is this this idea of of a funding model for material science research. Because throughout my career, and and I know that you probably feel the same way, so many innovations have been enabled by new materials, either new materials or new ways of making materials. Um, They are kind of the driver of so much of the manufacturing economy we have in this country today you know whether it's batteries whether it's you know advanced even computing technologies innovations in new materials and new ways of making materials you know unlock so many different possibilities and so one of the things i'm really excited about is how do we incentivize and encourage kind of broader outside the box thinking in material science um, and I think that's a really exciting kind of area for for innovation and, and yeah no I, th- I think you're right that the that the you need money to do this right and RPE is meant to be a ve- vehicle to provide money for high-risk research but ultimately you're still limited, I, I believe, mm-hmm. limited by the peer-reviewed process. Because mm-hmm. how does somebody who, how does how does a researcher who has been doing the same thing over and over again, because that's how they bring in their money to do their research, mm-hmm. evaluate something that they aren't, you know, as imit- in, intimately involved with in such a way that they're able to recognize something that's out of the box in that you know, other realm. And then you have a, you know, a panel and a whole series of anonymous, typically reviewers. Mm. How, how does that peer review model lend itself to identifying the appropriate high risk research and not settling on the more familiar? Yeah. And I think that's, that's a really good point. I think, you know, the, the whole kind of 
scientific communication or publication ecosystem, you know, has has some real shortcomings and challenges right now. I mean, it 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 disincentivizes public you know pub publishing certain kinds of research. Um, it slows down the rate of science communication. I think there are you know difficulties in access. So that's this whole question of open access. You know, I, I think across the way that we we communicate scientific research, um, you know, there's a lot of opportunities to, to kind of change things. Uh, because the way it's done today, I think is, is as you pointed on before, pointed out before, it's incentivizing a large volume of very low quality research. Um, you know, if, if you look at the rate of publications across all sectors, that's going up, that's going up the United States, it's going up, you know, worldwide. But, you know, for every hundred articles published, you know, there are only maybe a handful that are actually, you know, really novel, really interesting, yeah, really it's impactful. Tough to sift and it becomes very, you know, tough to sift through and understand, you know, what, what, is, what is valuable and, and what isn't. Yeah. So, I mean, how do you fix it? I mean, I, I've always yeah. been of the opinion that in terms of that peer review process, if it is either double blind, which mm -hmm. I think is difficult to do, or completely open. Mm -hmm. So there, you, you no longer have anonymity in the review process. Mm -hmm. Do you think that fixes any, would that force people to consider yeah. a little bit harder when they, when they do a review? Yeah. I, well, I think it's, I think it's an interesting idea, right? I think, you know, the whole process as it stands today, um, having, you know, uh, one party, you know, being being identified, one party being anonymous, is probably not the best way to do it. You know, what is the best model? I don't know, but I also don't know that the big publishers, um, you know, have the kind of incentives to really change the system right now. No, you're you're right, and I don't yeah. know that I'm specifically talking about the publishers as much as I am talking about the RPE type model or mm -hmm. like the the uh, who, who gets the money. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah. determining which which proposals get funded. And I don't want to go too far down that rabbit no, no, hole, yeah, but I, yeah. I, I, I do want to talk about how, how the, I, I think, especially when it comes to um, hardware mm. and, and the lack of risk-taking, not just in, in academia, but also among the investors. And, and they're used to a high rate of return in a very rapid amount of time because of software, because of that yeah. software model. Yeah. And now they have to get used to, and I think they're starting to come around, especially with incentives like the IRA and you know, other government incentives to fund higher risk manufacturing, because now we've fallen behind. Yeah. Now we're trying to fix it. Yeah. And I think, you know, from an investor perspective, you know, whether that's you know, private capital, whether that's, you know, the federal government deciding, you know, what to fund, there lies a lot of opportunity in investing in hardware, investing in manufacturing. You're right, the time horizons for the return on that investment are longer, but, but what you have is a much more sustainable model for doing investment, you know, over the long term. Um, you know, software is easy. You know, software is, you know, something that, like I said, folks can do from pretty much anywhere. They have access to a laptop with good software engineering. Um, but, 
you know, it's driven by kind of the market conditions of the time, you know, whether that's in, you know, social applications, whether that's, you know, software that is used in industry. Um, these things tend to have shorter time horizons and timescales for return on investment, but their long longevity is, is reduced versus manufacturing. When you build a manufacturing base, and it's agile, it's an agile manufacturing base that's able to be modified and innovated on, you give yourself this much longer runway, I think, of success than, you know, some of the, the software investments. But, you know, how how do you kind of change the model right now is something I've spent a lot of time thinking about as far as how you get ideas. You know, we talk about TRLs, you know, technology readiness levels. And, you know, that goes from a TRL 1 where it's just, you know, someone's crazy harebrained idea to a TRL 10, which is, you know, you go to the shelf, you know, at, at some industrial supply company and, and buy that product off the shelf. There is a lot of investment, a lot of time and a lot of really smart people that go into taking an idea from that TRL 1 to TRL 10. And it requires a lot of investment. And I think that what we need to do is a is a innovation culture, if you will, is help de-risk for the investor that early stage TRL, um, and then get it to the TRL where private industry or private investment can say, "Hey, we're really comfortable in funding this because we know it has a good chance of success." A lot of the risk lies in that you know first half, that TRL one to five range, and if we can find ways to encourage de-risking technologies in that TRL one to five range. I think, you know, that will really spur a lot of innovation. And and there's different roles for different people to play, different organizations to play in that space. So, you know, we think of a lot of that kind of research coming out of academia. A lot of that research uh, comes from, you know, big research universities. And they do a decent job at it but it's not perfect. Um, it goes back to some of those same problems that we were talking about. You know, how do you access funding? How do you in encourage people to, to do risky research? Encourage people to collaborate with people they wouldn't traditionally collaborate mm -hmm. with. Um, that's something I've noticed in my career, you know, that the greatest discoveries, the greatest innovations happen when two people who maybe are not in the same field, maybe they're in adjacent fields, maybe they're in totally different fields, start talking to it's each other. It's the intersection of two disciplines where, exactly. where innovation happens. You know, maybe I have some new instrument and someone mm -hmm. has something they need to measure and I can give them that instrument and they had never even heard of that analytical right. approach before. Yeah. Or maybe it's a way of thinking about the first principles, about the fundamental mechanisms of what someone's working on. Academia today, um, bar a few exceptions, is really, really poor at encouraging and accelerating that kind of cross interdisciplinary yeah, people stay in their lanes because that's how that's the gravy train right that's exactly. how they keep getting getting funding yeah and i you know what i found is you know that that these organizations within universities and whether they're departments whether they're colleges you know however they're set up they tend to be pretty territorial you know they want to protect you know their area uh the funding they get to that area of research and i think the more we can do to encourage cross-pollination and cross-collaboration, the more we'll kind of seed ideas and accelerate innovation in that early stage TRL mm -hmm. realm. So I think that's one thing. Um, and then I think the other thing is, you know, how do we have better mechanisms to encourage risky, you know, early stage research? And so that's why I like something like RPE and some of these more um, innovative funding programs, because someone can come up with an idea you know, maybe it's a novel battery design or an anode design or a cathode design, whatever it is, and maybe it's a little bit risky. If you can just put a little money into that and 
prove it out on the benchtop, maybe in the pilot scale, then investors can come in and say, hey, that's a good idea. There's some results from that. We can take that to the next level. And so I think the more we can do in those areas to try to incentivize that early stage research, the more we're going to get these really, really big ideas to market in the same way that we've seen with software with big companies like Google and Facebook mm-hmm. and Amazon. I think that's something that China has done really well, actually, is take TRL, you know, four to six, you know, successful research that's been developed either here or in Europe and then take it to 10 in China, yeah. right? I think that's where the investments that they've made more than us, right? That's what Absolutely. they've done right. Yeah, and I think that's certainly something they started decades ago. Um, and they're starting to catch up on the earlier TRL stuff. If, if you look at research coming out of China, they're investing a lot more in the last five, 10 years in early stage research and, and more fundamental research. But you're completely right. They've been very good at taking new innovations that have come out of different places and figuring out how to manufacture it and how to scale. And I think you know one of the exciting possibilities that the United States and the West has going forward is you know the ability to do that here, to accelerate the adoption of these technologies, to accelerate manufacturing these technologies. And, and the exciting thing about that is these are technologies that are high-tech, they're typically high paying jobs. They require an educated workforce to manufacture them and to innovate in them. And so I think, you know, one of the things I'm really excited about is as we're seeing this massive radical shift in our energy economy, um, driven in large part by electrification, you know, the United States has a real opportunity to recapture some of that manufacturing base that for decades fled, Um, you know, manufacturing base in all of these technologies from gas turbines to batteries to drilling technologies. All these technologies have have fled far afield. And as we transition in in this energy economy, I think there's no reason that we should not become the manufacturing capital of these technologies. Now, that's not going to happen naturally. It's going to require some good policy and some good investment. But if we do it right and we incentivize, if we incentivize the right things and we have the kind of um, research culture and environment that supports it, you know, I think we do have an opportunity to do that here and then you know, reap the rewards for the next 30 or 40 years. Um, I like to use the analogy of the Apollo program because, you know, prior to the mid-1950s, no one was making rockets. And the United States said, you know, this is something we want to be competitive in and we want to win. We want to win the space race. And we made investments in a domestic, domestic manufacturing base in aerospace. And that meant that in the second half of the 20th century, the United States was the leader in manufacturing in aerospace. When it came to rockets, when it came to spacecraft, when it came to aircraft, um, the United States was the place to not only innovate in these areas, but also do manufacturing. You think of the Boeings of the world and the Lockheeds and, and companies like this. We have the opportunity to do a similar thing now. You know, If, if we say we want to win the race in the new energy economy, if that's something that this country wants to do, and we make the right investments and the right policy around it, you know, we have the ability for the next, you know, probably 40 or 50 years to kind of reap the rewards of that as an economy. Um, and that's something I think that's, that's really exciting for, for, you know, what we have the opportunity to do here. I agree. It's exciting. I also think it's over long overdue. And, you know, we've, so we started from, from the education academia part, 
part and then went through, well, how is it, how does it get financed and, and how does the investment happen? And now ultimately it's, it is what is going to drive the economy. And that's what's made China so successful, mm -hmm. I think. And this is also why we have, what is it now? A trillion, $2 trillion deficit. I don't know what the deficit is this, this year, yeah. but this is the problem. This is the problem is that we are not deploying the innovation and taking it all the way through to manufacturing and ultimately driving the economy the way that we should be. We've relied too heavily on on software, I think. You know, the soft it's it was great in the nineties and it boomed into the, you know, into the, the early two well, it, it crashed in the early two thousands. But we need to hmm. we we need to bring that economic activity back home, keep it home and the energy economy is going to be the this the central part of this into the next century and, and i agree it's it's storage it's generation it's transmission it's how do we uh maintain control of the supply chain how do we maintain control of the technology and ultimately we want to be in control of our own energy and not having to be reliant on on foreign sources of technology and, and materials absolutely and and i think you hit the nail on their head there, which is kind of owning the full cycle of the supply chain, right? Um, we have not done that for many years in this country. Um, so I'm a nuclear physicist and spent a lot of time working on nuclear energy. And in the 1950s and 60s into the early 1970s, you know, the U.S. owned the full cycle of nuclear reactor manufacturing and, and, and fuel cycle. You know, we could mine uranium from the ground, we can make fuel, we could build the large pressure vessels, forge large pressure vessels for pressurized water reactors. We could take that fuel, we could manage it, we could store it. Um, we owned all the parts of the process. We don't do that anymore in this country. We don't own all the parts of the nuclear development cycle. And the same thing goes for almost every other sector. Um, everything from, you know, aerospace to um, oil and gas um, to even, you know, medical devices and, and pharmaceuticals. You know, we, we take pieces from different places and then we bring them here and we try to put them together in the things that we do still manufacture. Um, because of the rapid innovation and this kind of step change in technology that we're seeing in energy, we have the opportunity to do that, to own the full cycle, the full cycle of the supply chain of these energy technologies. And that means so much. That means, you know, the value stays in the United States across the supply chain, the value in the mining of the materials, the the manufacturing of the components and, and, the, and the full products. The value stays here. We can control the environmental footprint. We don't have to worry about someone going off and dumping their waste into a river or a lake because there's a lack of regulation. We, we know that the supply chain has, you know, good, you know, fundamental sustainability aspects to it. Um, and we don't have to worry about getting cut off, you know, whether that's from conflict, whether that's from economic collapse, whatever it is, if we own the supply chain, well, we know that we can always have access to those materials. So, you know, you think of a, what goes into a lithium ion battery, you know, being able to own the lithium, the uh, own the, um, the, the anode materials, the cathode materials, the ability to manufacture those into components and then manufacture cells, integrate cells into packs, do the power electronics. There's no reason we shouldn't own all this in the United States. And I think that's really exciting because when we do, we'll kind of be masters of our own destiny, so to speak. And I think that's, that's really exciting and not a place that we exist in today.
preaching to the choir. Music to my ears. Well, on that note, thank you so much for for joining the podcast again. And I'm so happy that you're local to Reno because we're going to have you back. Absolutely. I always enjoy it, Dennis. Thanks for having me. All right. Taylor Wilson. Thank you for joining us today on the Limitless Energy Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on any of your favorite listening platforms.